0: your Bibles now if you would please and if you'll open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. In today's passage we come to the final parable in this 13th chapter and I mentioned to you just about in every sermon that we've dealt with the parables from this chapter that these are given as Jesus explained mysteries of his kingdom. They're things that were not quite clear from reading the Old Testament and so In Jesus' time, there was much confusion about the timing of the kingdom and when all of it would take place and how that God's kingdom would come upon the earth. And as we've seen in the previous uh, parables, the mystery is all about this interim time that takes place between the first and the second advents of Christ. The Jews expected that when Jesus came, or when the Messiah came, that he would immediately begin the kingdom. This is what they're hoping for what they're looking forward to. The Messiah will come into the world. Immediately the kingdom will begin. And especially that the nation of Israel would be restored to the glory days of the past that it had under David and Solomon. And they didn't understand that the Bible was really teaching that when the Messiah came, he must first be rejected. First of all, that he would be held up to ridicule and to contempt. and Finally, he would be crucified. And the kingdom would not come in its power and its glory until the resurrected Messiah came to earth at a later time. And so these parables were given by Jesus to explain that interim time in the kingdom. And, in fact, it's the time that we're living in right now. What happens during this time while Jesus is absent from the earth? And the previous parables explained how this will be a time of the kingdom's explosive growth, that we're living in the time where we as children of God should be giving the gospel to people, that we should be telling people how they're they're lost and they need to turn to Christ to repent of their sins and believe in him, and then to recognize the glory of this great king who will come and discover the wealth of his kingdom, and especially the inexpressible worth of Jesus the king himself. And that part of it is described in the two previous parables that we talked about last week, that... The, the kingdom is compared to a, a and Jesus and the gospel is compared to a man who finds a treasure in a field. It's compared to a merchant man who goes out and buys the most expensive pearl, a pearl that's unmatched in its beauty. And both of those men gave up everything they had to obtain what they most desired. And then there were other parables, like the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that teaches that during this time, uh, this time that we're living in right now, that believers and unbelievers will be mixed together, that we coexist in this kingdom, and that God is not going to immediately bring down uh, judgment upon those that are lost. Now, there are, of course, many unbelievers in the world. And while Jesus is waiting to come back, even unbelievers receive some of the benefits of God's kingdom even though they don't really understand that Jesus is the king. And so Jesus taught that as people of God, we're to make no attempt to root out those who are lost and those that are wicked, those that don't understand. We're not to have any part of harming anyone or killing anyone or inflicting any kind of pain upon unbelievers. It's not really our job now to judge them But we're to keep giving them the gospel of Christ. We're we're, we're to hope and to pray that God will open up their hearts to this gospel, that they will understand and, and they'll realize what will happen to their souls if they don't receive him as Savior. And so in this time, God allows some tolerance of evil. But we're quite certain by reading the Word of God, and especially what we'll see today, that the time of God's tolerance of evil will come to an end. Now, today we're going to look at another aspect of this final assize concerning the destiny of unbelievers, and this is the judgment of the wicked. And this is the final parable in this chapter, and Jesus deals with this issue that there is a judgment that is coming. Now, if you stand with me, please, as we look at our text verses today. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 47, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net, that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord then he said then said he to them therefore every scribe which is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old father thank you for your word help help us to explain it today impress upon people's minds how important that this scripture is to the destiny of souls in this world thank you lord for the opportunity to speak your word in jesus name we pray Amen. You may be seated. If I could, I I, I would like to try to paint an image in your mind of this illustration that Jesus uses in the parable. And I remind you again that parables are illustrations of real-life examples. Uh, The previous parables were about planting and reaping. They were about wheat and tares. There's a story here about a small mustard seed that grows into a large tree. There's one about a little bit of yeast that's added to a lump of dough. There's a treasure found in a field. And there's a merchant man who looks for a valuable pearl. All of those things are drawn from real-life experiences, and these were used by Jesus to help explain certain aspects of his kingdom. Now, this time, Jesus uses a different illustration. This, this is something else to show us what, what is going to happen at the end of the world. And this is an illustration of a dragnet. And that's one of the common methods of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I remember when I was a child that what we would do is we would go find a stick somewhere or cut a cane pole and tie a string to it, put a hook on the end of that, go dig up some worms, and then we would head down to a, a farm pond or a creek or someplace like that and do some fishing. And I think all of you are familiar with that. Most of you have probably done that kind of fishing. But another thing that we would do is... Sometimes we would take an old gunny sack. Everybody know what a gunny sack is? (laughs) Some of you say, no, I don't know what a gunny sack is. Well, I'm not going to explain it to you. Ask somebody. Uh, um, A gunny sack. We would take a gunny sack, and we would cut the seams out of it, and then we would take it down to the creek and use it as a seine to catch minnows. And so you put that down into the water, and the minnows get caught in that, and you bring it back up, and that's a method of fishing. And that was used sometimes on the Sea of Galilee. But those aren't the primary methods that you would find on the sea. Instead, you would have many uh, commercial fishermen. And the job of a commercial fisherman is to catch as many fish as he can because he makes his livelihood from selling fish. And so he would use what was called a drag net. And this was a large net that was attached to a fixed point on the shore. And then a, the other end of it was attached to a boat. And they would take the boat and they would sail out a long distance into the into the Sea of Galilee. And then with this long, sweeping, arc-like motion, they would drag this net along, pushing all of the fish that were in that area towards the shore. And then when they were through with that direction, they'd come around and they'd start the other direction. And all the fish that are in that area would be pushed towards the shore. Now, you could imagine that them fishing and that method that they would catch just about every, or they would, every kind of fish that was present in that area, they would catch that fish and things that were thrown into the water that people wanted to get rid of. Those kinds of things got drug up in their nets. And so at the end of a fishing day, there was this tedious task of sitting down and trying to separate out all of the, of the edible fish, the ones that you could keep, the ones that were good. You had to sit down there and separate out all the good fish from the bad ones so that you didn't eat the bad ones. Now picture in your mind here that Jesus is using this as an illustration to teach us about the day of judgment, that there is a day coming when the good are going to be separated from the bad. And this happens when Jesus returns to the earth and that's what I was talking about a moment ago. This is the point at which God's toleration of evil in the world and in his kingdom is over. Now, the main intent of this parable is not to teach us about the outcome of the just. Now, those that know Christ as Savior have a wonderful outcome. And it's not, not a fear that when Jesus comes back. This is not to deal with those that are believers in Christ, but this is to teach about those who are unbelievers and what will happen to them, what God's going to do with those who have rejected Christ and how horrible that will be to come to the end of everything and not know Christ as Savior. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, in this parable, Jesus cautions about judgment. There's a caution of judgment. This is a real thing. I've titled the message this morning, What is the promise of his coming or the inevitability of judgment? And those are two statements that are very closely related. I take them from Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says there, "'Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation.'" We're living in the time that the Bible calls the last days. These are the last days of the earth. And during this time, God is making a, is gathering up. God is pushing everything towards this end period. Now, this time again that we're living in now is the interim period of Matthew chapter 13. This is what happens, what takes place in all of this time until Jesus comes back. And there are people that are convinced that there is no such thing as judgment. There are people that really don't think that any of this is true, that if God is really going to do anything, he doesn't have any harmful intentions towards anyone, that God is a God of love and he's a God of kindness and a God of gentleness. And they take from that, or what they believe necessarily from that, is that God is not going to punish anyone for breaking his commandments. And so the wicked go on and they sin with impunity and they act as if Christ is never going to return. And if they happen to believe he will return, they don't think it means anything to them. Nothing to be concerned about. We've been preaching about this for 2,000 years. We've been warning people for 2,000 years. We've been hoping that people would believe the gospel. They would turn from their sins because Christ will return. But there are people that are quite sure this is never going to happen. There is no such time coming, so they don't care anything about preparing for it. They don't care anything about what's going on in their lives. But as it says there in Second Peter chapter 3, people hear this and they say, it can't happen, tomorrow is just another day. And the next day after that is just another day, and all things continue as they were since the beginning of the world. So every day is going to be the same, just like the one before. And since that time that Jesus promised that he would return, there's actually been a new theology that has begun to develop among those who claim to be orthodox. Even those today in churches that say that they are orthodox and they believe the Bible, they say that there is no judgment. Even among evangelicals, there are churches that try to soften the blow for unbelievers. You don't want to bring people into the church and tell them that God's going to judge them for their sins. You don't want people to be unhappy. You don't, want, you don't want people to be worried about anything. And so they just pass on the issue of the judgment, and they don't teach about that. And they've come up with a form of annihilation which just says, well, if you don't obey God, it just means you're going to pass out of existence, that you'll no longer, you'll no longer be, be alive. It's just all gone. It's all over with. But the parable here tells a very much different story. It teaches the inevitability of judgment, and not only that there is a judgment, but that it culminates in the damnation of the wicked in an awful place that's called hell. Now, the visual picture of the dragnet here, just imagine for just a moment, if you could stick your head beneath the surface as this this dragnet, as this net is being pushed along in the sea, that you would look underneath the surface and you would see all kinds of fish there. You would see the St. Peter's fish. That's the one that uh, you go to visit uh, Sea of Galilee today. All the restaurants around there catch a fish that they call the St. Peter's fish. And, and uh, I didn't eat it, actually. I'm not a fish eater, so while we were there, I didn't eat any of it. But that, that's the popular fish. And so that fish is still swimming in the waters today, and you would see that kind of a fish. But also under the surface you would see slimy fish and you would see prickly ones. You would see the bottom feeders and there's even a snake-like eel in the Sea of Galilee that grows up to five feet long and those would be caught in the net as it's being pushed towards the shore. So slowly and inevitably the net takes all of them up and eventually they're all trapped, they're taken up together and then sorted out. And this is what it's happening today. Because every day that God passes, what he's doing is he's sweeping that net. And he's pushing and pushing day after day, day after day. Keeps pushing to this inevitable time when everybody is going to get to the shore and God says, it's over with. It's all done. And that's when people will stand before God in judgment. Now, I'm very much aware, and you should be too, I hope, That when we talk about the judgment that God's going to bring upon the earth, that there is a different time of judgment for those that are saved and those that are lost. And there is a different judgment altogether for those that are saved and are lost. But it's not the purpose of this parable to teach us the different times. This parable is to show us that, folks, one day this world is going to end the world as we know it will come to its end and the main point here is that some we would even say the majority of the world lies in unbelief and they're gradually being pushed towards the time in which they're going to stand before god and be judged for every sin in their lives now to put it to you very simply and people may not like this but they are the worthless creatures that are caught in the net they're the inedible inedible fish They're the ones that the fisherman decides are no good. He doesn't want these fish. And so he doesn't throw them back into the sea. They're not saved by being thrown back into the sea because the fisherman's already put out too much time and too much trouble to separate out the fish. So he doesn't want to throw the bad ones back. What he does is he takes all the bad fish and casts them or throws them up on the shore where they suffocate and they die. Verse number 47 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels and cast the bad away. So the main point here is how God will deal with the wicked. And the promise of Christ's return is a real promise. The Scriptures teach us that Jesus will be the king of a righteous kingdom, And this is all about what's going to happen to those that have gone so long mocking and cursing and rejecting Jesus Christ and not acknowledging his sovereign rule over their lives. This is the end purpose of the parable. The end is coming. Judgment is inevitable. And you may not think that this is so pleasant to talk about, but you ought to be everybody that ought to be happy. Everybody that actually doesn't even know Christ, so i be happy about this because he gives not just one warning in the parables. There's a lot of things that he could talk about the kingdom in the parables. He gave two warnings. Twice in this chapter, he deals with this very subject of what will happen to the lost at the end of the world. Now, secondly, we note the criteria for judgment. It's important for Jesus to explain the mysteries of the kingdom. And one of the most troubling aspects of it for the disciples was understanding why that God allowed wickedness to continue in the world. They didn't understand why Jesus, who is the Messiah, and is so obviously gifted with all the power that he has, all the things that he can do, he is so extraordinary in his abilities, Why did he let the scribes and the Pharisees and others teach him or treat him in such despicable ways? In chapter 12, they said he was from Satan. And instead of Jesus striking a death blow to them right then, and instead of calling down fire from heaven and destroying them, Jesus just threatened them. Jesus talked to them about future judgment. And you remember, James and John, they didn't think that this was. This was so great. I mean, there that one time they thought, well, what we really need to do is all of our enemies need to be destroyed. So let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah and kill them. But Jesus said, this is not the time for that. Now, the problem is that the kingdom looked like to them a kingdom that has no rule. That here's a kingdom that really doesn't have any laws, or if it does have laws, they're toothless laws. This doesn't really offer swift judgment upon those that are wicked. It doesn't really really do anything to punish those that are offenders. And that was hard for them to reconcile with what they saw in the Old Testament. They saw judgment in the Old Testament. They saw a righteous king and what he would do to unbelievers. And so thus you have another reason for the parables. This is a different form of the kingdom than what they expected. And so this mystery has to be explained. And the explanation of it is that for sure, without question, God has laws. The kingdom has laws. God expects those laws to be obeyed. For sure, there's no doubt about this, that God is high and holy and that God is not going to let the guilty escape. Laws that God established on Mount Sinai, those that are contained in the Ten Commandments, these are still God's laws that are in force and these are still the rule of God's kingdom. And I know that there are preachers who teach that, pastors that teach that God has abandoned his law. But the law really doesn't have any effect on us today. But what they don't understand is the way that God works through the law. The law is to show us how that we must trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Because you know something, folks? God still expects perfect obedience to his law. He's never given up on that. He still expects that people would perfectly obey everything that he says. And he still says there is punishment for lawbreakers. And the reason that people need Jesus so badly is because God enforced the penalty of his law upon Jesus. That he took the sins of those who would believe in him. He took, he took those that were guilty of all these crimes and he placed the punishment upon Jesus. His perfect life was in order to render obedience to God's law. And obedience, that you might put this way, is a certificate of righteousness that he could give to you because of faith in him. And so our sin and our guilt was placed upon Jesus Christ. And the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to us when we have faith in him. And that's the transaction that we call justifying faith. It's what the doctrine of justification is about. Our sins being given or placed upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to us because we cannot keep God's law perfectly. And we believe this. We trust God by faith. Now, that, that doctrine, justifying faith, justification by faith alone, that has a great benefit for those who are believers in Christ, but it has no effect on unbelievers because those that don't believe are still guilty of breaking God's law and they still have to stand in judgment. And in their nakedness of the shame and their guilt, they will stand defenseless before God and they'll have the full effect of God's wrath upon them. There's nothing to deflect it. The person has to bear that wrath of God himself. And so the criteria for judgment is all the multiple abuses of God's commandments. And the Scriptures teach that every person is very clearly guilty of breaking the law. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. It says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good, and sinneth not. And so for everyone, judgment is inevitable. Jesus teaches this, and he teaches that God is not going to reach out to anyone in his mercy who has not trusted Christ as the Savior. So there is a day of reckoning coming. And people say, where is the promise of that coming? It's been a long, long time, and we haven't seen Jesus. We don't believe that he's coming. But I'll tell you this, that when he does come, there are going to be a lot of people that wish it was much, much longer before he comes. Now, thirdly, we we would look at the casting away at judgment. Verse number 49 says, So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just... And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so this net is being dragged to the shore, and when it gets there, all of the bad are cast away. And this is what Jesus said the angels will do. When it comes time for the judgment, that the angels are the ones that are going to make this separation. Now, that's not the picture that we normally get of angels, it's not the Hollywood picture. It's not the picture that we get in the storybooks of angels with white wings and halos over their heads and baby faces. If you could see the actual description in, in Scripture of what angels look like in the form that God created them according to what the Bible says, we would probably be extremely frightened of angels. Now, there are some that appeared to people in the Old Testament and there was just shock and awe whenever they saw an angel. But it's also true that there were times when angels appeared in a different way. They were comforting messengers from God. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and Joseph in that way when they told him that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. There was a comforting angel Gabriel who explained that to them. And then when Jesus was born, there was this multitude of angels that with glad tidings and great joy told the people that the Son of God had been born. But as we look at this scripture... The angels are anything but messengers of joy. What they are here are enforcers of God's holy laws. And we would call them the executioners of God's justice. They are the destroyer of criminal lawbreakers. And so we see what they do here. We see the same in verses 41 and 42. When you have time, you might want to read chapter 24 in Matthew. And there it talks about the coming of Christ and the same thing, that there are these winged avengers of God who help to bring judgment. Then you look in the book of Revelation and you'll see multiple times where angels are defending the majesty and the glory of God. In Revelation 14, 19, it says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And that is the very same picture whether we're talking about cutting down tares or gathering up grapes or of separating out fish from the net. The angels are the ones who separate the loss for judgment and execution. And here the example is the wicked being taken away to their judgment. Now let me try to press this thought into your mind, that the outcome of judgment has already been decided. You know, we often think of things, you know, you see courtroom dramas on TV and such things, and you think, well, the innocent... the the people are are innocent until they're proven guilty. That's the way we think. The people are, are innocent until proven guilty. And so we have the idea, and some people do, that they're going to appear before God and they're going to plead their case. That they'll come to God and they'll talk about all the good qualities that they have. And they'll say, do you remember, Lord, the time that I went to church and how I invited somebody to come and and how I sat in the church and I prayed and did all of those kinds of things. Do you remember the times that I stopped on the street corner and I gave a few bucks to a, to a homeless person? Do you remember that? And they'll start to gather up all the paperwork and all the lists of good things that they've done, and they'll say, the bad things that I've done are really just innocent mistakes. They, they don't really merit. I mean, they're not really the cause of such awful punishment in hell. Look at the good things that I've done and, and consider that. Well, there is no consideration, and that's because the guilt has already been determined. Uh, the judgment of God is not a time for people, for God to decide whether you're good enough to get into heaven and just weigh, all the, weigh everything in the balance here and see how you turn out. No, the, the judgment has already been decided. David said, when he was born, this thing was decided. He said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there's no doubt that anybody who gets through this life without having trusted Christ is headed for a judgment where they're declared nothing but guilty. There is another outcome to it. The decision has to be made in this life whether you receive Christ as Savior. And then I add to that that there is no second chance. Nobody changes their mind. We're talking about determinations that have to be made in this life. You must trust Christ now or else you're caught in the net and drugged to the shore. And this is the exact reason why we warn people. It's why we keep preaching. It's why the gospel is given to you over and over again. It's why we tell you about the last days, because either Christ will return or you'll die without him. And either way, what you do right now counts forever. Now lastly, as we look at the scripture, we see the condition after judgment. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know what happens in these last days when people read scriptures like this? What they really try to do is try to make hell vanish into thin air. You sit down with many people in and, and churches around us even and you talk about the consequences of unbelief. And then see what happens when you mention hell. If you talk about judgment, I mean, if you're just just fortunate enough to get that far to talk to people about the judgment, just wait until you say something about hell and be ready for your conversation to be shut down. Nobody wants to talk about this. Hell is just something that we just get get away from. Don't don't even think about that. Hell is not even a, an option to even consider. Now, strangely enough that what people do is they try to diffuse the literal hell fire in the scriptures, the damnation that's found in scripture, by filtering it through Jesus' teachings on love and compassion. And and most people and preachers care very little to examine the scriptures to find out what did Jesus talk about the most? What are his most frequent topics? And they're experts on Jesus that we know everything there is to know about Jesus. And they've never actually read what he said. And if they do, they deny what he said you know who talked more about hell than anybody in the Bible? Do you know who explained it more vividly than any person in Scripture? Do you know who's the one who gave us the image of a, of a furnace of fire? Do you know who told us about wailing and gnashing of teeth? Did you know that it was Jesus that compared hell to a garbage dump outside a city of Jerusalem and talked about how all the refuse or the place where all the refuse is burned? Did you know it was Jesus who talked about worms that crawled all through that garbage? And he knew, and they knew, that those worms are burned up in the fire. But he's the one that took that analogy and talked about the eternal suffering of hell. And he demonstrated through that that the fire of hell never goes out. The body is never consumed. And so he said, the worm in hell does not die. It was Jesus who told the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And very graphically there, he described how the rich man was suffering in the torments of the fire, and he begged for a drop of water to be placed on his tongue. Can you imagine such torment as that, that just a drop of water would seem like a luxury? And that would be, if you only had one chance to plead for something in hell, that you would say, just please, one drop of water, just that little bit of relief, Why do you suppose it is that Jesus spoke so often on hell? Why didn't he confine himself to pleasant subjects like most churches do today and most preachers do today? Why not talk about pleasant subjects? The Apostle John said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's really sweet, isn't it? Jesus is full of grace and truth. Can you find anything bad in grace and truth? Is there anything there to talk about? Why did Jesus speak on this subject more than anybody else? Well, I think there's a really a good reason. It's because it's a subject that's so terrible and one so horrible that we wouldn't believe it if anybody else said it. I mean, if people have so much trouble believing what's so clearly written in Scripture and and they have problems believing the infallible Son of God when he speaks on the subject, how are they going to believe anybody else? I mean, why would you ever even think that I was telling the truth about it? Why would you believe me that there's such an awful place exists? If you won't believe Jesus, why would you believe me? And the truth is that more than anybody else, Jesus looked people in the eye and he warned them about hell. You ever heard people disparage hellfire and damnation preachers? They just don't like people to talk on this. Well, you might as well throw Jesus into the ones that you want to criticize because he's the one that talked about it more than anybody else. Read through the entire Gospel of Matthew. I just mentioned, twice in this chapter, he spoke on the furnace of fire and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Go back to chapter 5, and he talks about danger of hell fire. Chapter 8, he talks about being cast into darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 11, he said those that don't repent will be brought down to hell. Chapter 18, he talks about everlasting fire. Chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25 all have passages about hell. I promise you this, you put Jesus and Joel Osteen in the same room, one of them is going to talk about hell. Now, my point, though, of your outline, this point of the outline, is that what the condition of people is after judgment. What is that going to be like? I've already described some of it. The Bible talks about a torturous fire, that, a flame that never goes out. And you may wonder about that. How is it possible for a person to be in hell and burn forever? Well, the Scripture teaches that a person in hell is given a body that's made to last through an eternal fire. It can't burn up. And it's also a body that experiences pain, and yet it never faints, never passes out from the pain in order to get relief. This is pain that's so intense that he says people gnaw their tongues. And it isn't just about physical torture. I mean, this is so horrible that if physical torture was all it was, that would seem like a relief in itself. There are people who say, you know, I don't care if I die and go to hell. All my friends are going to be there. This is part of the mental anguish of hell. Hell is such a, a place that is so black that you can hear the screams, but you have no sense that there's anything there but loneliness. How sick and depraved would it be for someone to say, well, all my friends are going to be there. So I'll take comfort. All my friends are going to be there. Who wants their friends to join them in hell? Who wants mom and dad to be in hell? Who wants brothers and sisters to be in hell? And, and worse than this, to think about it. You, you that are parents, who wants your children in hell? What kind of a psycho does it take to say, oh, it's okay because my family's going to be in hell with me too. There's no comfort in that. And and that's just part of the depraved mind of, of, of man. But I think maybe that's a part that's going to change when you get to hell. Because you remember what the rich man said who was in hell? He said, please, please send somebody back to warn my brothers not to come to this awful place. And so hell is that mental torture also that friends and relatives were just like you that they would not. If you're not a believer, they would not believe. And so now they suffer they will suffer in hell. That's that's mental torture. And it's also mental torture to think about how simple the remedy is. That all that God says is what you need to do is trust in Christ. It doesn't ask you to do great acts of penance. It doesn't say, Well, here are a few lists of things that you've got to do and you've got to pay large sums of money to the priest. You're not asked to do anything at all, but but to trust Jesus Christ and to believe that he paid the penalty of hell for you. You're only asked to do this, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And do you know that you'll have all of eternity, perhaps to think even about this very message that you've heard today? Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And there are people, maybe somebody in here today, that will look back on this experience of being in church and they'll say, why didn't I just do what the preacher said? Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I trust Christ? And yet people pass up this very simple message of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ and, and his forgiveness just to live another day in their sins. Don't you know this? You're being pushed to the shore. Every day that goes by, you're being pushed to the shore until finally... There will come a day when there is no more chance to escape. And then there's another part of this mental anguish of hell. There, There is no hope in hell. No hope at all. In the Inferno, Dante said that there's a placard over hell that reads, All hope, abandon ye who enter here. There's no way to imagine what eternity is like, and certainly no way to imagine what it means to have no escape from hell. You listen to me today and you say, Well, preacher, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to scare me. You're trying to scare me into believing. You know know, if I could do that, that I would put on the most frightening costume that I could find, and I'd jump out behind every door in the dark. If I could scare you enough that you would believe in Jesus Christ. But you know something? I can't scare you into believing in him. I can't scare you out of hell. If you don't believe what he says... If you can't believe what Jesus says when he's the son of God, there's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to scare you out of hell. And so many people say, where is the promise of his coming? Because they don't think it's real. And so they laugh and they wag their fingers at us. And they say, you people are a bunch of crazy people. You belong in an asylum somewhere. And they can say it all that they want. It doesn't change the inevitability of judgment. It doesn't change the reality of this place that's described in the Bible called hell. Now, very quickly, then, we look at the last two verses. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So Jesus finishes with seven parables, about his kingdom, and he says to the disciples, have you understood these things? Now, everything that he said was actually unrecognizable to anybody but his disciples. It's one of the reasons why he pulled them aside to give them the explanations. The the, the other people didn't understand this. And he said to them, you're blessed because you've been given this information. You're blessed to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And appropriately, when he was done, he just said, do you understand? And here's how I would put it. Last statement on your listening sheet today, the way I put it, I'd say, does it click? Does it click with you? I mean, do you get what's being said? Same question that Jesus asked. Do you get this? Do you understand this? Do you know how important the message is? Do you get this in the parables where it talks about the wickedness of the world and how God is ultimately in control of all? And do you see what he says about how the kingdom will grow and how it's the responsibility of God's people to sow the seeds in the kingdom and bring people to Christ? Do you understand how that God changes hearts through the gospel? Do you get this, that the most precious possession that anybody could ever have is to know Jesus Christ, to know his gospel, and to have a part in his kingdom? Do you understand what it says when it says judgment is coming and all have to answer to God? Do you get the part about awful consequences of unbelief? Do you understand that hell is real? Does all of that click? And so now Jesus points out the difference between the scribes and his disciples, the scribes of the Old Testament and the scribes that were living then. They had nothing new to offer by way of explanation of the kingdom. They couldn't decipher the mystery. They didn't even know there was a mystery. So Jesus tells his disciples. Now, in effect, this is what these last verses mean, if you're wondering. He tells the disciples, you are the new scribes. You are the ones that are to take the Old Testament and teach the kingdom in the right way now that you have been given this revelation. He says, you're the newly trained Bible teachers, and now it's your responsibility to go out into the world and to preach the gospel. Tell them about heaven and warn them about hell. And that's what we do. This is our responsibility. This is what we do in this church. We tell people that they need to be saved, and that's what you need to be doing. You see, like the Holy Spirit, like the disciples, rather, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us to understand things that we didn't know before we got saved. Now we're enabled to teach the truth of God's Word. Now now we, we have this understanding of the abundant treasure that's found in the Word of God, that here is found the way of eternal life. So let's tell people about it. Jesus said, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Do you know what he's telling you? Look into the Word of God and find him. Look into the Word of God and find him. It's all right here about what Jesus did to save people from their sins, and again, the awful consequences of those who reject him as the Savior. So what we do is to tell people to trust Jesus Christ with everything that they have. Trust him with everything that they have. And these are people that are not going to say, where is the promise of his coming? These are the people that say with the Apostle John in the end of the Bible, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come quickly. Come, come. We want you to come back. It's a whole different story from those that don't believe in Jesus Christ they'll wish he never came, while Christians will say, it can't be too soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us in your word. And Lord, I I just ask you that in the feeble attempts that we have here to explain scripture and to really show people what hell is like, that that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would realize this and they would come to you in faith. But at the same time, Lord, I, I, I pray that Christians here will be so much impressed with this doctrine of hell and realize how awful that it is and people that they know are dying and going to hell that we would never shy away from telling people that they need to believe in Jesus Christ to escape this awful punishment that's coming. We believe you are a just God. You do all things well and we trust you that you will do exactly as you say, that when we put our faith in you, that you will deliver us from the punishment of this awful place that is inevitably going to be the home of those who do not believe in you. Lord, thank you and press upon our hearts today as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.